You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up because I'm not going to have all the passages on the screen this morning. Revelation chapter 19 is where we're going to be. If you're new with us, joining us online, we're so glad that you're here. And those of you that are decided to show up uh, here today, it's a special day. So we, uh, we've been having a lot of fun uh, here at, at the church. Uh, just this last uh, uh, Friday, you saw the big uh, uh, festival that we had. It was a ton of fun. We, you, you're going to guess who the Batman guy was. Uh, that was a guy in our first service, and he came up afterwards and said, thank you for not saying my name. <laughs> so uh, we had a lot of fun. We like to have fun at this church. It was Pastor Appreciation uh, Month, uh, and October is. So I, like it. so I think it's kind of cool that it is because it's also during Protestant Reformation. It's, like, it's also Reformation Month in, in Protestant history. And some of you are like, why are you mentioning pastor appreciation? You know, uh, I'm not trying to guilt you into anything. I just want to share with you what we did. We had some fun. We brought in some Manuel's Mexican food. Anybody ever had that before? That's good stuff. Brought it in for our pastors and uh, had a great time. And one of our staff members decided to try to just pull a prank on Pastor Ellis. Check this out. Keep close watch. Let's do it again. Close up. Notice the food doesn't spill. I fell down. I couldn't I couldn't stand. He thought he was going to call 911. Ah, oh, it's too fun. Let's celebrate just a bit. So Kaylee is a young lady. She's, uh, she's getting married uh, this week. So Pastor Joshua and her are getting married. Let's celebrate them real quick. We're excited about that. And uh, she's full of fun surprises. So she pulled up that big old costume and decided to scare him. And I just went along with it. It was not planned and it just worked really good. I just said, everybody turn on your cameras. Let's do this. So anyway, uh, well, hey, guys, we're going to study uh, uh, the, the return of Jesus Christ, and um, today uh, what, what I want you to see is just seven key truths about the return of Jesus Christ. And so um, what I want to do is I'm going to just go ahead and jump in real quick. We're going to read this passage of Scripture, and this is an apocalyptic kind of vision of what happens and let me give you the context and timeline of when this event occurs. This is uh, the, the event that has been called as the return of Jesus Christ. And included in that return of Jesus Christ is this battle of Armageddon. It is a powerful scene and imagery of Jesus Christ coming on a white war horse uh, to earth uh, to wage war against the Antichrist in all the, the, uh, his uh, demonic minions with him. And so John is going to illustrate that, describe that, and then what I'm going to do is kind of walk through some uh, kind of 
preliminary uh, foundational truths, and then I'm going to come back to the passage, and we're going to uh, unpack that in more detail. So let's just, let me, there, hopefully you've got it there. I'm I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. I'm going to read verse 11 of chapter 19 all the way down to 21, and you'll grasp kind of a picture of this big scene. So the Apostle John says in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. It is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is King Jesus. Verse 17, the Apostle John says, And then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God. Very apocalyptic vision. You might think of uh, Stephen King, the, the birds movie here. It says, To eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast. Who is the beast? That is the Antichrist. And the kings of the earth with, the, with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the, on the horse against his army. But in verse 20, we see good news. And the beast was captured with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." Whoa, I just said a lot. That is a lot. And what you're seeing right there is this great return of not a meek and mild Jesus, but a, a warring and lording Jesus coming as king in his second coming. No, truth number one is the return of Christ will be the greatest comeback. He will come back to earth to rule, to reign. He will come with victory. That is absolutely, it's like when the world seems like it's falling apart, when everything seems crazy and not going well, in the midst of that is the greatest comeback ever. Uh, just this last Sunday, um, I was watching the game, uh, the Arizona Cardinals play the Seahawks. That's a pretty amazing comeback game. Now, I know there's all sorts of opinions about whether to watch the NFL and all that. I get it. And DeAndre didn't do anybody favors when he decided to try to show everybody he's, who's number one, I guess he was thinking, when he's driving down the freeway in his Ferrari. However, 
the game. I'm sitting there on, uh, I guess it was Sunday night, the Cardinals are playing, Seahawks, eight years the Seahawks have been marching up here, coming into Cardinal Stadium and beating us in our own stadium for eight years. And people, commentators were saying it was like a curse. And so at halftime, it's not going great. And so I'm sitting there and my daughter looks at me kind of keying in that I'm not as interested as I normally am. And she says to me, while my wife is out of town and my other kids, she says, hey, dad, we haven't got a lot of time together. Do you think we could just have a daddy-daughter date? And I'm like, like the big dad test comes, right? And I'm like, ah, ah. And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, sure. So she goes, good. She turns off the game. She goes, let's go watch a movie on the back porch. So I'm like sitting there going, oh, Lord. And I kind of like start checking my phone to see what's going on. She's like, Dad, put it away. So I put it away. And then, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I thought the game was over pretty much. So then all of a sudden, I flip it on. As soon as she says, hey, Dad, I'm going to go to bed early tonight. I was like, oh, good. (laughs) So I turn it on, and I see the Cardinals won in overtime. It's the greatest comeback ever. Cardinals, whoa. And everybody's going crazy, and it's so – and I'm thinking, what in the world did I miss? And so when we think of these comebacks and we get excited, there's no greater comeback than that of Jesus Christ when he comes coming in to conquer evil and overcome all the darkness, all the injustice, all the hatred, all the evil that we see. That's the greatest comeback in American history and world history that we will ever, ever get to see. Did you know that God has actually been trying to prepare believers for a win? I don't know what happened in that locker room, but my guess is, is maybe Kingsbury walked in there and said, guys, you've you've been getting your butt kicked in here for eight years or coming in here. You've prepared to win. Go out there and win. Well, in God's game, believers are designed to win as well. Our story is, is that the church wins. We prevail against evil. There is a victory in store, and God's been preparing priests He's been preparing prophets and kings for thousands of years to help prepare other believers for this second coming, and this is not like his first coming. Listen to me. The second coming is not like his first coming. His first coming, he came as a humble child, meek and mild. His second coming, he comes as an adult king. His first coming, he came riding a donkey, bringing peace. And his second coming, he comes riding a war horse. In his first coming, he came to absorb the wrath of God, but in his second coming, he comes to bring the wrath of God on all those who rejected him. This is the greatest comeback ever in world history. Number two, the return of Christ is not the rapture. Many believers get this confused, thinking that the return of Christ is the rapture. It's different. The return of Christ uh, happens after the time period of the tribulation, and the rapture is, a, is something that happens before the tribulation. So they're different events. Um, while they are connected, they are distinct and different, and I'll illustrate that for a moment. Um, take, for example, at the return of Christ, the Bible says that Christ comes to earth. Well, in the rapture, the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians that Christ comes in the air. He never touches ground. He, he's in the air. In the return of Christ, Christ is coming with his saints onto the ground 
at the rapture, the saints are leaving earth, going into the air. So they're exact opposite. At the return of Christ, they're coming down. The saints come marching in. And at the rapture, saints are going up. So they are different events. No sign is needed for the rapture. It could happen any day. It's the imminent event. It could happen today. On your way home, there's no sign needed for the rapture. It could happen any time. That's the doctrine of imminency. It could happen at any point in time. For the return of Christ, there are many signs that need to take place in order for that to happen. There needs to be a rapture. There needs to be some kind of major peace treaty signed by the Antichrist with the nation of Israel. Then three and a half years into that, he will break it. And then the tri- all the tribulation is going on for a period of seven years during that time frame. And so there's many uh, signs that are needed for this return of Christ to happen, which will happen again at the end of the tribulation period. Uh, at the return of Christ, it will be visible for the entire world. The rapture, on the other hand, is said that it'll occur in the blink of an eye, and it'll just happen instantly. And so it's important that while the rapture and the return of Christ are different, they're still a part of this bigger picture called the second coming of Christ. So let me say that again. So you have the return of Christ, and then you have the rapture. Well, the raptures are really, it's a time of blessing. It's a time because believers are rescued for the coming wrath to come. That's very different than the return of Christ. Saints are coming with Christ, the King, and beginning to wage war. And so these two events, they are different, but they all are a part of this bigger picture called the second coming. So it's kind of like phase one, phase two. So phase one is the rapture. Phase two is the return of Christ. Biblically, theologically, and historically, that's the best way to understand this. When we talk about the return of Christ, it's to clarify that it is not uh, the rapture. Thirdly, um, is understand that the second coming, again, that involves the rapture and the return of Christ, is a dominant subject in the Bible. Um, you may ask, why are we teaching on, on the end times? Because it is a major uh, subject line in, this, in the story of Scripture. Um, the second coming, uh, this uh, word, phrase, is popular even in our, in our world today. Did you know that newspapers actually have special headline types that they reserve for these unprecedented events in world history? It's the kind of type or font that you would see, uh, would have seen uh, when Pearl Harbor was bombed or JFK was assassinated or after the 9-11 event, the newspapers had this second coming font type is what they call it. It's a, in a, a type of a, 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 referring to a type of event that is a worldwide event. And in the Bible, this is referred to all throughout the scriptures. Scholars can count some 1,845 biblical references to the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is emphasized no less than 17 books in the Old Testament, 23 of the 27 in the New Testament. There's over 300 references to the Lord's coming in 260 chapters, which means that that's one out of every 30 verses in the scriptures, we see reference to the second coming. So it's a major theme. 
There's over 333 prophecies about Christ. Only 109 of those have been fulfilled, and there's 224 yet to be fulfilled in the second coming. The second coming is the most dominant subject in the New Testament other than salvation. Jesus spoke about this uh, second coming, uh, and specifically about the return of Christ more than 50 times. And so, again, I'm setting up the work, and we'll return back to Revelation in just a a few minutes. But Jesus himself spoke about this more than 50 times, and it's interesting. Some 66% of Americans right now would say that they are anticipating and, and thinking that Jesus will return. So there is an American conscience of memory to to realize that there is a biblical saturation of truth that seems to give indication that the return of Christ is going to happen. Jesus himself spoke about him coming again. He told his disciples about a future event saying this, Matthew 24, 29 through 30. This has been called the Olivet Discourse. It's a strong commentary on the end times discussion. Jesus himself says, immediately after the tribulation. There you go. There's timing right there. This is the return of Christ after the tribulation. Of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, that is Jesus. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. It's a worldwide event. It's a sad event for many because it's a massive battle. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with what? Power and great glory. It is not a picture of the first coming. Jesus has already come the first time. This is his second coming. This is the return of Christ specifically. The apostles echoed these words in saying, Consider the apostle John's words. Look what he says. He says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. So this is going to be a worldwide event. It's all testified in Scripture, the second coming, this specifically the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke about it 50 times. The Apostle Paul's talked about it all the time. And look what the prophets say, thousands of years before the time of Christ. They say, then the Lord will go and fight. What? Did you, did, did you ever hear that? The, the prophets are foretelling that this Messiah will come back and he's going to fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, he shall stand on the Mount of Olives... That's a geographical location in Israel that lies before Jerusalem on the east, which is really, really, really cool. So prophecy says thousands of years before the time of Christ, he's going to come back, he's going to fight, he's going to come for a battle, and he's going to show up on a location somewhere on the Mount of Olives. So does that happen? Well, it seems to happen. It seems like it will happen because when Jesus was saying goodbye after his death and burial and resurrection, remember in Acts chapter 1, he shows up with his disciples and he presents himself, the Bible says, for a period of 40 days. He says, I, you know, I, I'm Jesus. Like, you can touch, hey, Thomas, you can touch these, these nail wounds. Hey, guys, I'm hungry. I could, like, you got anything to eat? He eats with them. It's kind of showing that that's a resurrected body. This is really Jesus. So the message of Christianity amplifies and just 
goes throughout the Roman Empire because Jesus is alive. And then, but what he says is, is he's, all right, I got to go. Boom, in Acts chapter 1, if you've got a Bible, if you want to flip there, you can. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 11, um, he takes off into heaven, and the disciples are standing there looking like, oh my gosh, there goes Jesus. And then the angels speak up and say this, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven, which is really, really cool. And you say, why is it really, really cool? Well, it's really cool because if you look in your Bible, I don't have it on the screen, verse 12, it says that they were, they were, they were coming from the place of the Mount of Olives. It's the exact same location that Zacharias prophesied that he would return. The angel said, just as he's leaving from you, that's just as he's going to return. So Jesus, according to biblical prophecy, he's going to show up physically, literally, in a geographical location. Then he's going to move forward, and then he's going to get ready to wage a war. God's word always proves true. You know, my wife and I are preparing for a trip. Uh, we're going to Israel with a group of pastors, and we're going to the Mount of Olives. We're going to go to these geographical locations. And so here's the deal. This is why I tell people that are unsure about Christianity. I'm like, Psh. like, there's nothing else, other religion that has so much crazy uh, archaeological, geographical prophecy statistics that actually come to fruition. Like, there's nothing like it. it. It ought to convince us if we were just betting people that this is the greatest faith ever because there's so much facts tied to it. So we're going to the Mount of Olives. We'll see that location. Zechariah prophesied about it. And it, he's not coming down just to, to have, you know, wine and relax on the Mount of Olives, though. He, he's coming down to finish what needs to, to be finished. And that is removing all evil, that is uh, finally paying back all the, for all the injustice and doing the things that me and you could never do. He's going to play God and ride in on his war horse. Watch this. Number four, the, the, the return of Christ is going to include what's called the Battle of Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon, you perhaps maybe seen a movie, watch an old Bruce Willis film where the, this Battle of Armageddon, you got this climactic event in your mind of like this big clash and crusade and whatnot. And, you know, the word comes out of Revelation chapter 16, verse 16, and saying, the Apostle John uh, says, and they, he wrote, and they assembled them at the place that is in Hebrew is called Armageddon. It is a war of all wars. You may think back to World War I, it was estimated some 20 to 37 million people were killed in the aftermath of that brutal war. And it was hoped that that would be the one war that would end all wars in World War I. But it only took like 20 years for another war to break out. And even higher casualties, 50 to, 56 to 80 million people would die in that war. And ever since then, there's just been this string of wars that has happened. And even before that, there's been war. We've had war on our earth. I mean, the first uh, uh, murder with Cain and Abel. There's been mayhem and murder and violence and evil in our world since, since the very beginning. And so what we see, though, is that there is a day when there's a climactic ending 
of this tribulation period, and Jesus, our King, is coming back, and He's going to clean house, and then He's going to set up a kingdom. So right now, we're prepping and getting ready for uh, presidents and, and, and getting our country ready and all that. Well, I'm telling you, there will be a day where there's one king over the whole world, and his kingdom will have no end. And so, in Scripture, we see this word mentioned, Armageddon, and in culture, it's also echoed. In 1971, uh, President Ronald Reagan Uh, governor of California, told a fellow politician, he said these words, for the first time ever, everything seems to be taking place for this battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Christ. In 1983, Reagan said, uh, when I turn to the prophets in the Old Testament and I see signs pointing towards this Armageddon, I find myself wondering if this is the generation that this is going to come about. Billy Graham said as well, there is no doubt that global events are preparing the way for the final great war of history, this great Armageddon. If these guys were talking about this back then, like how much closer are we now? And so what we see is that there's this mention of Armageddon. The word Armageddon comes from a word that means valley of Mitigo. You can actually visit that location. That's, it lies within the boundaries of Israel. In fact, I I'm plan to go there uh, very soon to the Holy Land and visit this exact location. Within biblical history, there was all sorts of battles on this battlefield. Uh, this is the battle place where Deborah and Barak defeated the Canaanites or Gideon defeated the Midianites. We know as well that King Saul was killed uh, by the Philistines here. And in, in more recent history... Napoleon himself said this in 1799 about this battlefield. He said, all the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plain. There is no place in the world suited better for war than this place. It's the most natural battleground in the whole earth. The reality is, is the Bible speaks of these events that are going to take place, specifies geographical locations, gives us details not to scare us, but to prepare us. And to realize and put our faith and trust that justice will be paid. There is a battle to come. There are many misconceptions about Armageddon. I want to talk to you about what it is and what it is not. It is not one battle. It is a series of campaigns. It will happen over a a square mileage of about 20,000 miles from the northern border of Israel to the southern And there is a great massive battlefield plain in which there will be the climactic battle that will end the tribulation period. Uh, Jesus will come in just at the right moment in time. The Antichrist will have amassed a massive army of soldiers and of uh, demonic minions, if you will, to come in to wage war against God's uh, holy saints. Specifically, they will seek to eradicate the Jewish people. Does that sound familiar? It's been happening before. It's going to happen again. Then the, uh, just in the nick of time, Jesus will come in on his white horse um, when the Antichrist and his soldiers are going to try to destroy Jerusalem. They will capture him, begin to uh, 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 go to war. So let's look at that. Number five, truth number five, the King Jesus is coming on a war horse. 
Let's look. Look in your Bible, if you will, verse 11, uh, Revelation 19, verse 11. Here's where we get a picture of King Jesus on his war horse. Bible says, uh, John speaks here, and he says, Then I saw opened, and behold, a white horse. And pause. This is not the white horse that you saw in Revelation 6. That was the Antichrist. I told you about that. Very different. He says, behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and righteous. He judges and makes war. He's not coming to bring peace. He's coming for war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one, but him, no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and by the name which he is called the word of God. This imagery here is of a, a, a conquering warhorse leader, is what it is. In that day, most military leaders would ride in on a, a white horse that was uh, after the battle was won. In other words, you would only send the white horse out when the victory was accomplished. But here what we see is Christ is coming at the beginning of this war, signaling this, that everything's already been prepared and the victory's already won. He just needs to walk through these, these motions. And so in this passage, we get this, uh, we get to see the kind of the character and the nature of Christ. If you will, look back in that passage and notice a few key words. First, he says that he's faithful. Well, Jesus is faithful. The King Jesus is faithful. The one on the white horse, he's faithful. He's faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his character and his nature. God will never disappoint you. He always is loving and he's just. He's always faithful. No matter what happens in life, he's always faithful. Well, the Antichrist is unfaithful. Satan is unfaithful. In fact, the Antichrist, when he showed up on a white horse, he's symbolizing in the very beginning of the tribulation that he's coming in with peace. He'll create a covenant of peace with the nation of Israel. But then three and a half years into that, what's he going to do? He's going to break the covenant. He's unfaithful. Jesus is faithful. The Antichrist is unfaithful. Jesus is true. Notice what it says in your scripture. It mentions the word true. Jesus is true. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one gets to the Father but through me, Jesus said. The devil is filled with lies. The Antichrist is, in a sense, the son of the devil, son of Satan. He is filled with lies himself. The Bible tells us that uh, he is, uh, the devil is the father of all lies, and everything that the Antichrist is going to do is false. It's fake. He will sweep up millions and millions of followers because of his charisma and because of his charm and because of how clever he is, but he's a liar. He's false. He's a phony. He's a fake. He mimics the ministry of Jesus. And that's what you always see in Scripture, even in the days of Moses. When you think of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, there's a supernatural showdown between God's people and, and, and the demonic workers, the evil workers, and they're doing miracles, and then they're being countered by evil. And so with everything that you see good and godly, it's going to be mimicked and modeled imitation in the dark and the demonic He's a fake. He's a phony. Righteous. Jesus is righteous. He's a righteous one. Well, very clearly, the Antichrist is unrighteous. He's cruel. He's, he's, he's a, 
filled with evil and, and hatred and horror. Jesus is righteous. No one is like him without sin. He's coming, but he's coming to judge, the scripture says. He's judging the nations. The time has run out. You and me are not judges of people, of other Christians. Jesus is the judge. And the Holy Spirit is the helper. For me and you, what we do with other believers is we don't judge them. We let Jesus judge them. Jesus is a good judge. You and me aren't. We love people, according to the Scripture. Love God. Love your neighbor. That's the second greatest commandment. That's kind of what we're supposed to do. Should we make interpretations and judgment calls of some dude that comes up and tries to date my daughter and he smells like pot and and liquor, am I going to say, get off my front porch? Yeah. Hit the road. Don't don't, don't come back, Jack. So yeah, we can make judgment calls, but judging in this sense, this is Jesus is the judge. The Antichrist is not coming to judge. He is judged. He's guilty. And, and And he knows he is. Jesus is coming and he reveals his character in nature, John does, at least in, in Revelation 19, this, these few verses, verses 11 through 13. Jesus is called in this passage as well. Notice in your scripture, it says the king of kings. His purpose as a king is to judge the nations and to conquer the Antichrist. That is the reference to the beast that's mentioned in the verses. And this is very different than the first coming. Notice his eyes. His eyes are not filled with compassion uh, like when he cried for Jerusalem in his first coming. No, now his eyes are not filled with tears of sorrow. They're filled with fury, like fire. He's not riding in like he did on his first coming on a peaceful donkey. With everybody saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. No, he's coming not on a donkey for peace, but he's coming on a white stallion, on a war horse. He's not coming wearing a crown of thorns that you and I mourn on Good Friday when our Lord was crucified. He's not coming in that manner. He's coming with a crown of glory, a crown of victory, symbolizing his kingship and rightful ownership of the world. He's not coming with a uh, uh, garments that have been ripped and, 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 and torn and then whipped with a cat of nine tails and his flesh being beat to a bloody pulp. No, he's coming, but his robe on the second coming is dipped in blood. It's spattered with blood to signify judgment and vengeance on evil. This is a very different picture than the first coming. It signifies the victory that he's coming to put a final end to all the injustice that you and I hate, all the evil, all the hatred, all the violence, all the killing, all the rape, all the evil that we see in our world, it's going to end. Jesus is coming on this war horse. And what's even more interesting to me is that he's not coming alone. King Jesus, number six, will come with the armies of heaven. You've heard the song, Oh, when the saints... Oh, when the saints come marching in, I want to be part of that number. Boy, I cannot clap. Oh, when the saints come marching in. As a kid, I used to remember singing that song. The song actually originated as a Protestant hymn. It was, still, it was popularized 
by the Louis, Louis Armstrong, a famous big band, New Orleans style, 1939, transformed that song into a timeless jazz tune. But it's a song about revelation and redemption. And what's powerful about it is, look in your Bibles, Revelation 19.14. Bible says, in the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, that's our uniform, white, pure, we're following him on white horses. I get a white horse. I get a new uniform. I'm going with the king. I'm going to come marching in. What's baffling is that the scripture indicates, not only here in Revelation 19, 14, that, but all throughout the scripture, that there will be saint soldiers and then angelic forces showing up on this day of Armageddon. We don't sit passively in the sky strumming a harp with Jesus thinking this is great with chubby little babies flying around. No, there's a progressive element that happens with this kingdom. Come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And guess what? Saints get to be a part of that. The armies of heaven. What an amazing, exciting experience this will be. The Bible tells us that that an army from heaven is going to become riding in on our own white horses as well. The army is going to be composed of both people from heaven and angels from heaven all throughout the Scripture. There's actually references to this stuff. Zechariah 14.5, listen, the Lord my God will come in all His holy ones with Him. Zechariah the prophet said, the holy ones are going to be coming with Him. Speaking of the return of Jesus Christ, Matthew 25, 31, notice what Jesus says. He's, listen, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him will come. So we have saints coming. We have angels coming. This is a massive battle. 1 Thessalonians three thirteen says, the apostle says, when our Lord Jesus comes again with his holy people, amen, and with his mighty angels too. There's a mixture between saint soldiers and angelic beings coming to this great battlefield. Jude 1.4 says, the Lord is coming with countless and thousands of holy ones with him. Some of you might ask, well, how many, how many? Hebrews 12.22 says the number is innumerable. There's no one could count. This is a number that no one could see. As far as you can see, you'll see saints and soldiers and angelic armies coming in with King Jesus. Number seven, King Jesus is going to strike down the nations. He's going to strike down the nations. He's coming. He's coming with angelic forces, and he's coming with saint soldiers. How many of you guys have ever seen the Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings? Raise your hand. Did you know those writers were steeped in biblical uh, 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 understanding and theology? Uh, where do you think they got those incredible storylines? They got it from the scriptures. Of, of course, they looked at other things like Greek mythology and everything else. And, but the scene that I was talking about with the armies of heaven and this, this, this coming against the nations of evil, this scene is a reminder of, for me, it's the Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings, where creatures from another world ally with humans to destroy the evil once and for all. It's a wave of righteous warriors coming to conquer And they will be led by King Jesus and all the soldier saints and angelic armies will follow in this greatest battle ever fought on earth. And some may ask, you know, when will this happen? It's going to happen after the time of the tribulation. 
the very end, and there will be a time when number seven, King Jesus will strike down all the nations. Verse 15 tells us this, that from his mouth comes a sharp sword to which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them uh, with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. This is a description of this uh, apocalyptic war that will take place on the battlefield. And this is going to be led by King Jesus. And there's three things in this passage. You might go back to that passage and just look at it just for a moment there in your Bible, uh, Revelation 19.5. And there's three different things that I want to point out to you in that passage. Number one is, is this word. Mentions uh, this, uh, his, from his mouth, there'll be a, a sword. Uh, the scripture often refers to this uh, spoken word as the word of God. In Hebrews 4.12, the scripture says uh, that the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. Jesus is going to speak, and there will be power in his speak. It'll be a weapon. It will defeat evil and darkness. How many of you guys have maybe seen the movie uh, uh, End Games with the Avengers? You might recall that one scene where Thanos snaps his finger and and everybody's vaporized. And you're like sitting there thinking, oh no, what's going to happen? In that moment, on that day, Jesus' power will be far greater. He will speak a word and millions of soldiers will fall dead. His words are powerful and they have been in Scripture. You think about Lazarus when he spoke, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus is raised from the dead. Or when he cursed the fig tree and it withered with just a word. Or when he silenced the storm, when the storm was raging, just a word, he spoke and it was silenced. Or when he called the legion of demons out of this man who was riddled and rattled by these demons, with a word, they leave his body. With a word, Jesus will speak and the armies will fall to the ground. Secondly, there is the winepress imagery. The apostle John calls this uh, this destruction that is to come with Christ calling it treading the winepress. In ancient culture, this winepress was a practice that involved uh, men and women that would be standing in a large crate of grapes, and they would hold on to a rope so they wouldn't fall down and then crush these grapes out. And at the edges of the crates would be these little holes, and the juices would flow and then run out, and then they would salvage the, the juice the grape juice. The imagery here is that of Christ crushing his enemies, crushing evil, blood flowing, that it's this, this conquering imagery of a war. And then lastly, there is the issue of the world. This is not just one nation. The Bible says all nations, meaning this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is a battle that nobody will survive. Those that have rejected Jesus Christ, the unrepentant, they will all be conquered in this time. This is the process of God, in a sense, setting up a brand new, a whole, good, fully pure earth. And he's purging all evil at this point in time. And you say, man, but that sounds catastrophic. Yeah, but remember 
All throughout the Scripture, the Bible has said that even in His coming, someone said it was slow, and He said, well, I've been slow to come so that nobody would perish. Remember as well in the tribulation, the 144,000, those Jewish folks, those are like bad-to-the-bone Billy Graham evangelists. They're going to be traveling around during the tribulation. Millions of people will come to faith in Christ. So the gospel's been preached. Grace has been given. But there is a tolerance to the king. And, and this is it. This is the final straw against all those who have rejected Christ that are still on the earth. The nations will come to an end. Every nation has an expiration date on it. The United States of America has an expiration date on it. Um, think of uh, countries and nations of the past and empires. Consider the Babylonian Empire. It lasted 86 years. Consider the power of the Persian Empire. It lasted 208 years. Or what about the glory of Greece? It was eclipsed after 268 years. Or consider mighty, mighty Rome. Eight centuries. It lasted a long time, the power of Rome. Or what about the British Empire? It endured almost 250 years. And now, in you think of our nation, the United States of America, 244 years old and counting. Every nation has a number. And the reality is the Bible is foretelling of a time when all nations will be struck down. And you might say, well, where is America in that day? Hopefully, most of America is raptured. You know, I mean, if you look at the polls and the research and see that there's a bunch of people that do have a Christian conscience and say they believe in God, hopefully many Americans are raptured in that day, in that time. Hopefully millions and millions more of all these churches that we have, they'll be left empty and those left behind in the tribulation are going to say, it's time to start praying. It's time to start like thinking about this. And they're going to come back into these churches. I've told you before, they'll, they'll name, instead of North Valley, it'll probably be the Church of Second Chances. And, 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 and many will come to faith in that time. But nations all have an expiration date on them. And King Jesus is coming back. And there will be no more politicians, no more presidents. The Antichrist will be done. There will be one only King Jesus reigning and ruling. And he will set up his throne from Jerusalem. And he will set up a thousand-year literal reign on earth. And there will be peace and prosperity like never seen before. And that's what I'm going to be talking about next week. The millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So here's what I want to do. I want to close out in this. Um, many of you come from a Catholic background or perhaps you just love this passage so much. Um, it's a very important passage out of uh, Matthew 6 about prayer. But let's pray this together out loud. This is uh, taken from the uh, 1600 uh, King James Version of the Lord's Prayer. Will you pray this out loud with me? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. That the name above all names is King Jesus. And Father, as we look at nations around the world, some have trusted you more than others. I pray that we in our nation would trust you more. 
I pray that we in our country, as even as citizens today, that we would find our citizenship with you, the utmost importance above all other allegiances, your name above all names, your words weighing more on our hearts and thoughts and minds than any others. Father, I thank you that you will uh, reign and rule as the high king of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give today at northvalleychurch.org.